1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Basteck. I've had Aaron Bobro Strain's book, The Death and Life of Ida Hernandez, on my desk for weeks. But of course, the day he comes into the studio is the week we learn that CBP is keeping migrant children in cages without their mothers or toothbrushes or soap. We've had a humanitarian crisis on the border for decades. But man, this book feels timely in the most tragic way. Aaron Bobro strain is a politics professor at Whitman College, with decades of history working on the U.S.-Mexico border. His new book, though, isn't a polemic. Its nonfiction blurred almost into a novel—the story of a single woman and the lives and laws she brushes against as she's pulled back and forth across this imaginary line—enduring immigration court, for-profit detention, family separation, gendered violence, and a host of other traumas. Aida Hernandez, which is not her real name, was brought to the United States when she was just in elementary school, pulled across the border from the Mexican town of Agua Prieta to its other half, Douglas, Arizona. There, her mother's new American boyfriend abused her in front of her kids and levied her undocumented immigration status against any thought of getting help. Aida got pregnant at 16 and married a man who repeated that cycle of abuse— and then she was deported without her son to Mexico, where she couldn't work legally either because she couldn't afford to obtain a national ID. So she bartended. And the end of her first night, she accepted a ride home from a man who stabbed her half to death. The book opens with her ambulance ride back across the border to the US for emergency medical treatment. But things don't get better from there. Ida lives, but hers is not a Cinderella story. And she's not a bootstrap immigrant fantasy. She's human. Erin Barbara strain joins us in the studio to talk about the book and how Ida's story can help us get a grip on something so much bigger than a single border town. Thank you so much for coming in, Erin.
2: Thanks for having me, Stephanie.
1: So my first question for you, why Ida? Why this particular woman's story at this particular moment in time?
2: Yeah, I mean, I went to the border in, in January of 2014, wanting to write about how people are living their lives across increasingly stark political and national divides. And I had spent time on the U.S.-Mexico border in the early 90s when a lot of the policies that we see today started to take shape. There's this kind of beauty and richness to life on the U.S.-Mexico border, life in the borderlands, that I think gets left out of a lot of reporting today on the border crisis. Uh, Because the border is a place where you can see uh, issues that affect all of our communities, whether it's economic globalization or racial nationalism. Economic inequality is another one. Um, In really stark perspective on the border, and you've been able to see that for a long time. So folks on the border have a real um, lesson to teach the rest of us who are engaging with those questions. And I had a very strong connection to the towns of Douglas and Amo So when I decided I wanted to work on writing a book about the border, I headed there. And uh, I had no intention of writing a book about about one person. I spent a lot of time interviewing Border Patrol and mayors and former mayors and community organizers and, you know, the guys who hung out down at the 10th Street Park, trying to understand what it's like living life in this town that has become heavily militarized by U.S.-Mexico border policy. And at a certain point in there, I, I a woman named Rosie Mendoza who's a a real, she's kind of a she's a, a badass social worker a formerly undocumented woman um, who works with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault on the border um, and at one point she she took me aside and said there's this woman a client who is now a friend and you know I can't tell you anything about her but I'm going to tell her about your project and If she wants to talk to you, she'll call you, and if she calls you, you should definitely talk with her. Um, And it took a long time before she called, but then Aida Hernandez and I finally met in a park on a kind of wintry day. She told me her story. Yeah, and I had, up to that point, I had no intention of writing a book about one person, but her, her message was so strong and clear. And... You know, the idea of of having someone write a book about you wouldn't necessarily click with a lot of people, um, but it did for Ida, um, and she. We talked about it for months, and you know, she said that doing something like this was a way to turn all the suffering that she'd been through into something powerful, something beautiful that could reach people. Even talking about being part of this project as part of her healing from the violence that she'd gone through.
1: Mm-hmm. So, how did you? I guess prepare to write the book or or feel not qualified exactly, but you know it's it's a big responsibility both to her and to this story on the border to tell it well and to tell it as completely as you can so how did you i guess how do you feel like your life up until this point led you mm-hmm. to that and prepared you for that, and then how did you bring in? other elements beyond Ada's story mm-hmm. to create that full picture.
2: You're absolutely right about the responsibility and commitments. In fact, early on in the project, I, I printed out and taped over my desk this quote from the anthropologist Philippe Bourgois. Um, he was paraphrasing another anthropologist, Laura Nader. Um, and the quote is basically, don't write about the poor or, and oppressed uh, because anything you say about them will be used against them. So I was, I was very conscious about the long history of kind of exploitative writing um, or voyeuristic writing about what some people call, you know, uh, poverty porn. And navigating that ethically for me meant a couple of different things. First of all, it meant trying to make the process as collaborative as possible. Ida would be part of shaping the story, and she'd be reading drafts of the story, and we had long conversations about um, different kind of challenges uh, that came up in the course of of telling the story. Not just Ida, but her family and friends and other people whose lives intersected um, were not just kind of being interviewed, but they were also reading drafts and, and providing feedback. And then equally important listening and engaging with and learning from people who understand the risks of this kind of writing um, in a really immediate way, um, particularly scholars and activists of color. And I think the other thing that's really important here is, is conceptual, um, which is that this is a book about Aida Hernandez, but as much as it's a book about Aida, I also wanted it to be a book written with Aida. Um, in collaboration with Ida about the kinds of policies and structures that the rest of us have created or allowed to be created in our own name. So it's Ida's expert knowledge about this world um, that animates this book, as much as it's a book about her. I hope that the book can be a mirror for those of us who see the border from a more privileged position to think about what has been created in our name, supposedly to keep us safe.
1: Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier the message that you think Ida's life really brings, and that's one of the reasons why you chose to write about her. So, I mean, what is that message for you?
2: You know, in that first meeting, that first winter day when Ida told her story to me for the first time, I was shaking afterwards because it's such a painful story. There's so much suffering. But what really had me in tears that day, I think, was the kind of evident pride with which she told the story of, of having survived this world that the rest of us have created on the border. Um, there was a kind of brio and wit in the way she told the story. And, you know, the writer uh, and journalist, Hector Tobar, talks about how One of the problems he sees in a lot of journalism on the border and immigration is that uh, it often treats immigrants as kind of props in tragic immigration tales, um, rather than capturing that kind of pride in having survived and navigating the world by the seat of your pants. And that's something I really wanted to convey. Um, And out of that, I think... um, the kind of the political piece of that is about the politics of deservingness in that animate our immigration debates today it's really hard to underestimate how much the kind of impossible binary between the flawless innocent high achieving quote unquote good immigrant and the bad criminal immigrant, um, how much that underpins our debates about immigration today. You know, even in this moment where there's assaults on on children and cruelty to children who, you know, would be the paragon of innocence, it's still clear how much that deservingness binary plays a role in the way people are maybe outraged about the treatment of innocent children, um, but perfectly willing to allow, you know, horrific treatment of the rest. And I think one of the things I really wanted to capture in this book is the kind of what I saw coming out of that very first meeting with Ida, which is the, the dignity and the worth and the value of people who have led really messy human lives. And there's really very little room for that in our immigration system. As Rosie Mendoza, one of the, the characters in the book, often says, she says, um, humans make mistakes, immigrants can't. It's a quite unforgiving system, um, and so one of the ideas here is about trying to expand the boundaries of empathy to think about the value and worth and the, the belonging in our communities of in you know in us communities of folks who have lived messy, complicated lives and made mistakes.:
1: Yeah, I mean it seems like we're living with these two archetypes, right You have the dreamer this high achieving, undocumented college student. And then you have an MS-13 gang member and there's no room for anything in between. Right. And um, now you have the collapsing of those categories. Who was it? The acting director for ICE, Mark Morgan, saying that he can look into the eyes of migrant children and see who's going to become an MS-13 gang member.
2: And it wasn't just in the Trump administration. I mean, Obama talked about how we want mothers, not felons. And, you know, he and his speeches on immigration set up that that binary as well. And it's an impossible binary. And the idea of rejecting that binary is not something that you know I came up with. It really comes out of immigrant youth movements themselves because they realized that, yes, as kind of innocent, high-achieving dreamers, they could claim rights for themselves. Um, but in claiming rights for themselves, they would be throwing under the bus their own parents often. The narrative of the dreamer story is, you know, I was brought here not by my own choosing which you know places the blame on the parents the parents become the the bad immigrant in that story and the immigrant youth movements have really rejected that and people who are active makers of their community belong you know even when they've made mistakes and are human
1: right well I mean and so much of the crime that their parents have committed is is only a crime because we've called it a crime you know that process of criminalization. Uh, Which I think is a really important role in the story, because not that long ago, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans and Americans crossed back and forth across the border, no problem, no documentation required. And then suddenly in the 60s, we have this boom in illegal immigration because a law was passed to declare it. So can you outline sort of the history of that criminalization of the border, Mm -hmm. you know, and how it brings us to the present? Big ask.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so should we start in 1790? Yeah, you can go really far back. (laughs) No, I mean, the reason I say 1790 is, you know, that's the moment where we really stake the grounds that citizenship in the United States is about being white, and that immigration control is racial control, um, that early in the process. But effectively, there's no, you know, immigration law per se until the late 19th century. And immigration controls emerge as a part of a kind of racial nativism, um, particularly targeting Chinese and other Asian Americans, um, as well as what today might be considered white folks, quote unquote, inferior you know, Jews and Italians of Southern and Eastern Europe. By the 1940s, 1950s, the civil rights movement is beginning. World War II has ended. Eugenics is highly discredited after World War II, um, it's become very difficult for the United States to sell itself as the kind of bastion of freedom, um, particularly as it tries to win the allegiance of of newly independent nations um, in the global South. Uh, when it has this explicitly eugenicist, racialized um, immigration quota system. So there's a series of liberal reforms in the 50s and 60s, culminating in 1964, um, with a new law that's colorblind on the surface. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm compressing a number of different laws and, and processes into a, into a quick summary here, but um, it effectively gives the same quota for every country in the, in the world, as opposed to uh, in the past where countries had differing quotas, essentially based on their desirability in a kind of racial hierarchy. But what's strange is that even during the height of all this racial nativism and the racialized quota system, the Western hemisphere was excluded from quotas um, and folks from Mexico, Central America, were allowed to immigrate to the United States. There was no numerical limit. Um, there were periods when you know there was violent retaliation against uh, Mexican immigrants. Um, mass deportations in the 1930s and 1950s. You know, it wasn't a perfect situation, but there was in many ways free uh, immigration, a circular kind of immigration where folks from Mexico would circulate up to work in the United States usually they would return to Mexico after the season through the town of Douglas you know the same people would migrate at the same time every year then they'd head back to Mexico at the same time every year there was a kind of familiar rhythm and pattern um, you know this was formalized in the the bracero guest worker program after world war 2 uh, until 1964 but essentially you had a system where you had unlimited visas um, and then all of a sudden we have this formally uh, race blind completely equal quota system well it's 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 a fairer system you know for a country like madagascar or bhutan um, or indonesia where people had been uh, racially excluded from immigrating before but it has a disastrous impact for mexican and central american migration where you go almost overnight from somewhere in the neighborhood of 400,000 people Um, a year to one where, you know, there's under 20,000 visa slots and all of a sudden there's all this undocumented immigration and people are surprised, like, where did all these undocumented people come from? But, you know, it's really the same circular pattern of migration. You know, they essentially closed the front door, the legal door to migrating to the United States without Addressing any of the root causes, um, and then we're shocked to discover that um, a, a migration between these two countries that had been interrelated for since before there was a border, continued. In many ways, the rest of you know the next fifty years or so is the same story.
1: You know, you mentioned the economic story of why people migrate from Mexico to the United States, and that plays a huge role in Douglas in particular because. Um, Its economy has changed so much Mm -hmm. since the 1950s, since the close of the smelting factories um, to today. Mm -hmm. So another big question, I fear. But um, how has life in Douglas shifted in that time? How has that Mm -hmm. change in the law without necessarily a change in behavior patterns affected and sort of unspooled across that period of time?
2: Yeah. I mean, so the first thing, you know, if you're, if you're, you're walking into Douglas from somewhere in the United States, um, you know, before you get to the, the double border wall with the medieval moat and heavily militarized presence at the border. That one Iraq War veteran from Douglas described to me um, as something that gave him flashbacks to the Green Zone. Before you hit that, Douglas looks a lot like other small towns across the country. You know, the kind of small town that's lost its its green bean cannery or its washing machine factory. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, Douglas was founded in the 1900s, and for much of its history, had a vibrant booming, upwardly mobile Mexican-American unionized working class that was really sustained by the copper industry, particularly um, a large copper smelter. And it was in many ways a a Phelps Dodge copper company town. Um, But it had a sense of purpose and place in the larger world economy um, and um, a sense that there was a future here. Um, And then like so many small towns across the country, um, You know, in the 1980s, there were anti-union campaigns and the uh, Phelps Dodge closed the smelter down. The smoggy air cleared up and the good jobs disappeared. And the town's never been the same since. And I think that's really important to, to point out because a lot of times people might look at a town like Douglas, a poor town on the border, and assume that it has always been that way, but it hasn't always been that way. And understanding that history of racialized disinvestment in this place is key to understanding how the town, the kind of contradictory ways that the town has experienced the border buildup. On one hand, Douglas has chafed against the militarization of everyday life. As more and more money flooded into securing and hardening the border um, beginning in the 1990s, um, it started to throw up a wedge between um, what had effectively been one community, Douglas and Agua Prieta, a place where community ties, family ties, commerce all crossed the border, blurred the border every day. A lot of baby boomers in Douglas would tell me the story of uh, baseball games where you know home plate would be in the United States um, and the outfield would be in Mexico, right? So something that completely blurred the border. You know, it's maybe an apocryphal story, um, hard to say, but it certainly captures the way in which life was lived across both sides of the border in this place. Um, and now you have a kind of heavy militarized wedge being driven between the two towns. And so Douglas chafed against that in many ways, um, but also um, was found itself dependent economically on... Um, that new border military industrial complex. Um, It's one of the most heavily policed small towns in America, and about one in seven employed adult males in Douglas work for law enforcement. Um, Some folks, um, including myself in the book, call it a... uh, Homeland Security Company town. It makes for complicated quinceaneras when you know one, one cousin works for the border patrol and the other cousin is a smuggler, but it really explains the contradictory way in which the community has um, experienced this border buildup.
1: How do you see the origins of our current crisis at the mm-hmm. border with kids being denied toothbrushes and beds? How do you see the precedence to that policy in that process in Douglas?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the question we need to be asking right now. Because if you take the strict logic of prevention through deterrence, which has been stated from the start, the goal is to make border crossing more dangerous, more difficult, and more expensive in order to supposedly deter migration. You start to realize that things like border patrol agents slashing water bottles in the desert, um, kids sleeping on concrete floors, um, denied toothbrushes and soap, um all those are those, those are not accidents. those are the actual intended results of this strategy, right? There are simply new and different ways of making um, th- the border crossing more dangerous um, more expensive in the hopes of deterring. Um, Even I would extend that to thinking about criminal violence on the border, right? Movies like Sicario or the various kinds of cartel movies that are out there, um, they kind of train us to think about cartels and migrant smugglers preying on migrants, rape, extortion, and violence as enemies of the United States. Um, But from the strict logic of prevention through deterrence, they are force multipliers, Those cartels are doing the work of making the border crossing more dangerous, more difficult, and more expensive. So I, I think that's the perspective we need to have when we're thinking about, say, toothbrushes and soap. And also why I think the idea of that, you know, somehow we're going to solve this problem by having good-hearted Americans donate toothbrushes and soap to the Border Patrol is quite misguided because it's not about a lack of resources. This often said, but it's worth repeating, is that, you know, by 2012, this deterrence-obsessed focus on immigration enforcement was funded to the tune of the equivalent of all of the federal law enforcement agencies, the FBI, the DEA, the uh, ATF, the Secret Service, the U.S. Marshals' offices, combined um, with, the last time I checked at least, enough money left over to run the National Park Services. So the problem is not the lack of toothbrushes and soap, because it's actually the cruelty there is the point.
1: So we've talked about how broader immigration policy has manifested in this small border town, both before and during the course of this one woman's life. What about the reverse? What do you want Ida Hernandez's story to do in the world? Do you think that the book will change minds?
2: I mean, I hope so. I think, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, part of the book is about trying to expand the boundaries of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think that empathy is a key first step, but I'm also really aware that empathy isn't enough. You know, a reader can read a book like this and, and feel empathy and feel sorry for Ida, but that has a way of kind of letting the reader or, or us off the hook, right, because we've individualized The problem. The problem is that we need to feel sorry for Ida. um, And that allows us to kind of ignore our own complicity in the structures and the policies that have made Ida's life almost unlivable.
1: The U.S. Border Patrol, by the way, has an annual budget of $4.7 billion, a more than tenfold increase since 1990. There is a ton of great reporting on this subject, but as someone who first came to understand the world through fiction, I think that sometimes you need a heroine to explain life at the border to you. Erin Strain's book, The Death and Life of Ida Hernandez, gives you that heroine in all her complexity and humanity. And after reading it, you'll feel like you've got the grit of a dusty border town stuck under your skin in more ways than one. We have links in the show notes to the book and other work, including a story in our summer issue from a former border patrol agent, and now civil rights lawyer, whose world looks less logical and less just after five years on the border. We also have law professor Kermit Writer's cover story for us, which looked at how for-profit immigrant detainment, which is something that Ida Hernandez herself experiences, is just another step in the criminalization of the border, the erosion of the line between untried detainee and convicted criminal. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.
2: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?